You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's sermon text comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Lord, our God and Father, we ask that you would fashion us this morning into your likeness. That you would do this by and through your powerful and abiding word. Speak to us today. Unblock our ears, lighten our eyes, and renew our hearts and minds. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On December 9th, 1965, 15 and a half million households viewed one of the most uh, beloved Christmas films of all time, and it just so happens to be my favorite one, A Charlie Brown Christmas. Mm-hmm, yep. In this classic film, which if you haven't watched it, honestly, there is no better day than today to watch uh, Charlie Brown Christmas. The hapless Charlie Brown searches in this film for the true meaning of Christmas. Now, you maybe didn't know this, but several months earlier during production, a disagreement broke out between the cartoonist and film creator Charles Schultz and its producer, Lee Mendelson. And their disagreement was about, about a particular scene in the film, right? When Charlie Brown is about to give up on Christmas altogether, which if we're honest, we've been there before, unhappy at Christmas. Linus takes the stage, asks for the house lights to be turned off, and to an empty auditorium recites the story of the birth of Christ. And it's an unaltered recitation of Luke chapter 2, which we just heard this morning. Mendelssohn sought to remove it, insisting, like many of his day, and for sure today, that religion and entertainment do not mix on television. But in the meeting, Schultz insisted on keeping the scene, and he said, if we don't do it, who will? 
For us as believers, when we consider what Christmas is all about, we are the ones to remember, recite, and not forget the meaning of Christmas. Because, contrary to what you've been told, Christmas is a Christian holiday. We sometimes lose sight of that. Did you know, according to a Pew Research poll, 92% of Americans celebrate Christmas. That's nine out of 10 people. It's staggering. But only 50% of Americans, and this is an older poll, uh, see it as a religious holiday. I'm sure that's lower today. In fact, I think even as you look around and see that some churches have decided not to gather on Christmas morning highlights that belief, the separation between Christianity and Christmas. You wouldn't imagine not having services on Easter Sunday. Christmas is a distinctly Christian holiday. The earliest we have recorded of those celebrating Christ's birth goes all the way back to the third century. In fact, this day, today, December 25th, though most likely, hate to ruin it for you, is not the actual day of Christ's birth, um, the reason that we celebrate it is Christian. It's because the early tradition around the church uh, connected the conception of Christ with the day of his death. And so if you do the math, let's say it's March 25th, many think that, that Christ died, then that leads us to December 25th. My point in all this is to bring us back to the reason that you and I, uh, as believers, celebrate the advent of Christ. We are celebrating a historical event, one of the most monumental events in human history. God became a man, born of a virgin, entered our world to redeem sinful people. Why would we not want to celebrate that? And that's why we sing And it's a glorious reason to celebrate. So let's recount this original story once again. It's easy to lose it with all the commercialism, like Charlie Brown, traditions, and familiarity. Uh, But we of all people don't want to miss the the true meaning of Christmas. Um, We want to recount it because if we don't do it, who will? So if you're not there already, go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I invite you to turn your Bibles Uh, into Luke chapter 1. We're going to consider verses 26 that were just read, 26 through 38. Now, this is the beginning of the gospel narrative written by Luke, and uh, it's something he's investigated. He's followed closely, written down in an orderly account. You can see that in verses 3 and 4. And his purpose is that you would know beyond a doubt of the reliability of what you've been taught. And the scene that comes next is the birth announcement of John the Baptist. It takes place in the cultural, political, and religious center of Judaism, the the crowded city of Jerusalem. In fact, it goes even further. It takes place in the temple. Uh, It is here in the temple, as one pastor put it, that the angel Gabriel breaks 400 years of revelatory silence. God, through the angel Gabriel, promises a son to priest Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. The son, whose name will be John, will prepare the way, make the people ready for the Lord in his sovereign plan. And it's, a mir- it's miraculous. Elizabeth's womb was barren, is now pregnant. 
a harbinger of impossible things to come with our story with Mary. The scene shifts at verse 26. You can see that there. And once again, Gabriel delivers a birth announcement, a divine promise of the coming birth of a son. What was miraculous in the conception of John is about to be eclipsed in the conception of Jesus. Lord uh, Luke records a prophecy about a coming king. And this king is the forever king, the Messiah, the one who will deliver his people completely and finally. And this is relevant for us this morning, Christmas morning. We can see God appointed the coming forever king in the birth of Jesus. This is about a coming king. Behold your coming king. What do we see in our text this morning? We see three aspects of this newborn king that I want to look at each in turn. And my hope this morning is that as we meet this Jesus, we will remember the circumstances of his glorious birth. And I'll urge you to trust in him, to surrender and rest in his kingly rule over all things. All right, so let's consider the first aspect of his coming. That's a Behold, the coming king, first aspect, number one, an unexpected meeting. Number one, an unexpected meeting. Meeting. It's Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 30, the first five verses. Look down at it. Verse 26. During Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, God sends the angel Gabriel to the city, to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin named Mary. And what I mean by unexpected in this first point is really that the setting is not the one that a Hebrew in this day would have thought. It's like taking a family vacation to Nebraska. It's just simply not what you would expect. Why Nebraska of all places? That's what it's like here. Uh, Big things are going to happen. But in Galilee, in Nazareth, It's unexpected. And there's three specific details that kind of I draw out from this. First, a backwater town. Second, a country girl. And no, this is not a Hallmark movie or a country song. Um, But it's a backwater town, a country girl, and a gracious presence. So first, a backwater town. Verse 26, Gabriel comes to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. Now for us, we know this city, but for many in that day, they wouldn't have known anything about it. Um, As I read about Nazareth this week again, I thought of a sophisticated word that we used growing up about little towns in Wisconsin. The word was podunk. (laughs) Nazareth is a podunk village in the first century. It's a place mostly made up of Gentiles. It has no historical or biblical uh, significance prior to this. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. As one commentator called it, a nothing town, while another called it Nowheresville. And do you remember Nathaniel, a Galilean, asked Philip in John 1, verse 46, so Galilean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So even a place that a fellow Galilean would despise. Where would you expect this angel to visit? Well, maybe you'd expect like you did previously in Jerusalem, or a place connected to David and the promise of Micah 5-2, Bethlehem. And of course, we know the story. God 
sovereignly orchestrates and directs all events to lead Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem so that Jesus' birth would fulfill the promise of Micah 5, 2. But the angel travels here to a rural, remote, insignificant village, a backwater town. Now, I believe the average Christian can be encouraged about this. No matter where you came from, no matter how lowly your beginnings, no matter how insignificant your past, God redeems even the most insignificant things in our lives. Plus, think of Jesus' words in the Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Lowly beginnings. So backwater town. Number two, a country girl. Look at verse 27. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now here we consider Mary the mother of Jesus. And I wonder if we are quick to gloss over this uh, because we know the story so well. I think maybe we uh, do gloss over it. So we want to be introduced to Mary, a virgin betrothed to a descendant of David. As you probably know, betrothal has similarities to our engagement period, but it is much, much more serious. A couple has already entered into a legal covenant with one another. Um, This was the custom of the day, and it would last about a year. Um, It was serious because only divorce or death could end a betrothal. And here, Mary, a country girl, is betrothed to Joseph. So in the middle of her rather insignificant life comes this transcendent visit, the word of God from an angel. And what does the angel say? We find his greeting in verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. One of the difficulties sometimes when you interpret the Bible is that the church has had certain interpretations throughout its history. And unfortunately for the church, the Latin Vulgate, a translation from Jerome um, back in the early centuries, uh, translated this phrase for us, hail in Latin, hail full of grace. And over time, this uh, misunderstanding came to mean that Mary was an individual who was full of grace, meaning she was able to bestow grace upon anyone who came to her. So if you have any connection with, the Ro- with Roman Catholicism, you'll recognize this from the rosary. Um, but let me suggest full of grace is not a good translation. And on top of that, Uh, I want to be clear, this is not the normal way that we understand grace in the New Testament. The Bible knows nothing of grace as a substance to be conferred and given to others. Rather, the normal way it's used in the New Testament is not something that you or I pass on to others, but it's something that reveals our unworthiness and need for the great mercy of God. So what it's simply saying is this, greetings, O favored one, meaning you are the object of God's mercy. It's like Mary is not the quarterback, she's a receiver. She's receiving, she's a recipient of God's grace, not a bestower of it. 
God's infinite grace and mercy is given to her as he makes her the bearer of the Son of God. Is this not upside down to our normal thinking? God shows Mary incredible favor, grace to carry out what he has called this teenage girl, because most likely she was a teen, what he has called this teenage peasant girl to do. My question for you to consider is what qualifications does Mary have? What education or what degrees does she hold? Or how how much prestige does she have? What power does she have? Where is all her influence? How quick we are to value those things, to value the things that the world tells us to value when all we need is the favor of God. When it comes to serving, and Mary is going to serve, the only eligibility you need to serve the Lord is his merciful favor. That's astonishing. If you're here and this morning you're discouraged about how God made you, where he has placed you right now, consider Mary. Consider your calling. Think about 1 Corinthians 1, what Paul says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, do we despise the favor of the Lord? Or do we trade it for something that will not satisfy? So a country girl. Backwater town, country girl, and last, a a gracious presence. That's the third detail. And it's verse 28 and 30. Um, Right at the end there, greetings, O favor one, the Lord is with you. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. The angel proclaims, the Lord is with you. And that's, there's no qualification. There's no condition, not a future promise. No, it's in the present. The Lord is with you. Much like gifts on Christmas morning, we opened our gifts this morning. It's not like I go tell my kids, hey, go work. You got to work to receive these gifts. No, they're gifts given without any condition or qualification. What a reassurance to know that even though her life is about to change, she will not be abandoned. The Lord will never leave her or forsake her. Mary is not alone in what she's about to face, and brothers and sisters, neither are we. I want you to notice just two things. First, it is grace to be used by God. It is grace to be used by God. It's favor. To be, it is, to be used by God is to be loved by him. Notice how Mary is favored, even though she knows little about what uh, that means yet, the fact is God is going to use her in an incredible, unprecedented way, and that's good. It's favor. Second, I want you to notice verse 29. Look what it says. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, which wouldn't you be if an angel appeared to you? Greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So that's the second half is what I want to think about. What does that mean to discern what this greeting might be? 
It means that she literally was considering what the angel was saying in her mind. Much like she does later in the birth narrative where she ponders in her heart, she was, as one writer put it, rolling up her sleeves of her mind and thinking it through. And the point I draw from this is Mary, with this vision of an angel, doesn't just shut off her brain. She doesn't abandon her intellect. And I think that's the normal experience of someone who the Lord speaks to personally through his word. One of the results is that they begin to think, to reflect rationally on what they have seen and heard. Interestingly, it's often the non-Christian who wants to avoid thinking and to escape. They can dismiss the tough questions, but no, when Jesus, when Jesus speaks to us, we begin to think. It'll make you think similar to how it made Mary think. Well, God does not always work in the way that we think he will. He does the unexpected. He uses the ordinary, lowly people. He shows up in surprising ways. And that's, number one, an unexpected meeting. Now, I want you to look at number two of this uh, coming king. Jesus is coming. And it is, number two, an unending kingdom an unending kingdom. And that's the next three verses, Luke 1, 31 through 33. So in these verses, they contain one of the most incredible announcements in all the scriptures. The angel prophesies about who this son of Mary will be. This gift of a son is described in terms of a supreme sovereign power, a king who will bring an unending kingdom. These three verses give us a portrait of who the baby will become. It's a fourfold uh, portrait, and I want to examine it closely. First, Savior. Verse 31, Savior. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Call his name Jesus. This is a common idiom. You can think of Isaiah 7, verse 14. And behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. The name Jesus means Savior. Literally, the Lord saves. Matthew 1, 21 gives us a little bit more. The angel speaking to Joseph says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for because he will save his people from their sins. This Jesus, this baby is a savior. We didn't need to go searching for him. No, he came down, entered this broken world to save us from our sins. If you haven't turned to him in faith, this morning is a perfect time to turn to him. All right, savior. Second, the baby to be born will be great. He will be great. You see that in verse 32? Now, we use terms like great all the time to refer to various objects, events, and people. We say, ah, it was great to be with you, or that dessert last night was great. We talk about the greatest athlete, composer, actor, and sometimes even calling them the goat, the greatest of all time. There's always a debate with those, who is the greatest? Is it Michael Jordan or whatever that other guy's name is? (laughs) Or the greatest animated Disney musical? Is it tangled or frozen? Which one? We sometimes consider what it means to actually be great. Jesus is unequivocally 
great. The angel says he will be great, and that comes without any qualifiers. John the Baptist, great before the Lord. Jesus, he is great, period. This greatness is inherent in who he is as king, and he is truly great in the true measure of greatness, and that he lays down his life for his sheep. And we can say that Jesus is the greatest human being of all time. Perfect in every way. No one comes even close. He is, in a word, great. Kings are great, but Jesus is the greatest of them all. And that leads us to the third thing. The baby born will be called Son of the Most High. So the Son of Mary is the Son of God. This is a messianic title, but it's more than a messianic title. It's a reference to his divinity. This baby is not just any prophet. He is the absolute, unique son of the living God called the son of the most high. The baby is certainly human, son of Mary, conceived in her womb. We confess that Jesus is a man, but also he is the son of God, true God from true God, co-eternal son forever, truly God and truly man, Two natures united in one person. Even as we sang uh, last night, O come all ye faithful, Jesus, to thee be glory given, word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. And it's important to note that his sonship comes first. It is not something that comes by virtue of his role as king or Messiah. No, his eternal sonship is the basis for his role as Messiah. This is the glorious incarnation. God comes to earth in the form of a baby. And fourth, this baby born will be the forever king whose kingdom will never end. Second half of verse 32, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Gabriel says to Mary, your baby will sit on David's throne. Can you imagine what that must have felt like? The long expected king, all Israel's hope rests and is found in this king. And Mary hears, your son will be this king. God sovereignly appoints this baby as the one who is given the royal kingship promised in the Old Testament. He is the king to sit on David's throne. He will accomplish what all other royal figures in the Bible, stretching back from Adam to Abraham, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, what they all failed to accomplish, this king will, an enduring kingdom, one that will not, will last forever. This Jesus is the one. He's the one. In Advent season, we wait. We wait for Christmas. I mean, we're here today, um, but all this time we anticipated it. All of history anticipated this very moment with angel and Mary. In verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The emphasis here is an everlasting nature of Jesus' kingdom. Israel's king, kings failed. Jesus will not fail. He will reign on David's throne and his reign will not be limited to Israel. Rather, his reign will be for all people who believe in his name. And we know his supreme reign will be established by his conquering death 
and triumphant resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. He rules and reigns today. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. His rule is not limited to David's throne. It's not limited to Jacob's house either. No, his kingdom will fulfill everything intended there, but more. It stretches further and goes on and on, having no end. His reign will, is not a passing earthly reign, but an everlasting kingdom. And Christ will reign throughout all eternity, and his birth is the first step um, of, of this Davidic promise being fer- permanent and ultimately fulfilled. A prophet several hundred years earlier said, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, over his kingdom, to establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For us on Christmas, we behold the baby born, and as believers, we acknowledge him as our Savior and our King. Perhaps just thinking about Jesus as King isn't encouraging to you, for whatever, for, for whatever reason. You don't see the glad tidings or the good news because you feel so removed from David's throne. Well, I want to encourage you. In the Old Testament and in ancient Israel, the king not only represented the people before God, but also led the people. As the king of Israel went, so went the people. The whole nation was wrapped up in the king's rule for good and what was most often the case for bad. And this is true for the spiritual kingdom as well. We who were once in the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Adam, have been transferred into the kingdom of light. Now we are connected forever to our King, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final Davidic heir, the one to whom all the promises find their fulfillment, whose kingdom is unending. Your life as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, is forever wrapped up in his You will therefore share in his resurrection, in his rule, and in his glory. That's the relevance of an unending kingdom. Let us bow down and worship this glorious king. All right, so we have an unexpected meeting, an unending kingdom, and last, we have an unprecedented birth. The whole reason we have gathered this morning, and this is in the final five verses, There has never been, I can say this, there's never been, nor will there ever be a birth like this one. This is beyond all precedence. There's precedent for Elizabeth. Old Testament has a lot of barren wombs that the Lord uh, brings babies out of. But there is nothing like this. And Mary asked the question, which clearly follows, how? How can this be? since I have never known a man. Gabriel, there's an important piece missing in this announcement. 
How can it be that I've never had intercourse with a man? That's biologically impossible to have a baby. Her question here is contrasted with Zechariah's back in chapter 1, if you remember. But Mary's is not like the priest's. Zechariah doubted, while Mary believed. She was seeking not proof like Zechariah, but understanding. And the angel delivers. He gives a glorious response in verse 35. Let's read it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So I've tried to... um, say this as succinctly as possible, but just studying and thinking about the virgin birth has been a challenge. So we're going to try to cover as much as we can here uh, this morning, but bear with me. Jesus was born of a virgin. The child conceived is conceived by the Holy Spirit. So this we discover in verse 35, that Jesus is all the way back to Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman born of a virgin. We believe this because that's what the scripture says. The God of the Bible is the creator. The language in verse 35 centers around the Holy Spirit and is filled with allusions to Genesis and also to Exodus if you're listening closely. In Genesis, the the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. This is creative language. While it does not remove the mystery, of course, it does show that a creative God, the creative God of the Bible, has the ability to create life within Mary without a man. An empty womb is no obstacle for this God. The creator who can bring something out of nothing, God has only to say something and it exists. It happens. The virgin birth is something unique in history. And it's unique also to the history of religions, too, as well. Even pagan mythology falls short of what we have before us. This is unprecedented. In their stories, gods come down and they have intercourse with humans and begin to produce these demigods, offspring, who are mostly terrible. That is not the story here. We can be sure that verse 35 is not a euphemism for intercourse. Now, what is being said is that by the mighty power of God, a virgin will conceive without a man, without intercourse, and without any other interference. Now, I wonder, maybe there's someone here who's honest and says, man, this really bothers me. The idea of the virgin birth. Perhaps yourself, you call yourself a Christian, but you have trouble with believing this miracle. You ask, can I still be a Christian without believing in the virgin birth? Well, the first answer should probably be very clear, and that is the Bible doesn't say believe in the virgin birth and you will be saved. The Bible says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's probably why we don't go into evangelism and say, hey, let me tell you about the virgin birth. We start and present them with a savior. But then there comes another question that I think gets to the heart of why the virgin birth is so important and why I believe it's essential. The question comes to us is, who is the Jesus that you're talking about? Who is the Jesus we're talking about? It's necessary for us to be specific, to be exact. 
I don't know if you've had this experience where uh, you're planning to meet a friend at a food chain. You set the time and you set uh, where, and you, you, the time of the appointment and the restaurant. And then you get to the day, you, you show up at the restaurant, you're sitting in a booth and you get a text from the person that says, where are you? You are meeting at the same time, but you are at two different locations. We must get Jesus right because it's impossible, it's possible to embrace a counterfeit to the real Jesus. It's possible to embrace a counterfeit to the real Jesus. Have you ever had that situation where you're talking and you say, do you know Dave Smith? Yeah, I know Dave Smith. You're talking and realize you're not talking about the same Dave Smith. Because of this, it's important that we are particular. When talking about believing in Jesus, who are we talking about? Because we easily in our pluralistic society can pick and choose what we want to believe, kind of like this smorgasbord. Um, we're, uh, uh, we can pick and choose what we're comfortable regarding Christ. But what you end up with is a Jesus in your own image, building your life on sand, coming to judgment day and hearing, I never knew you, depart from me. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anyone hearing my voice. So you can see it's important that we need to be exact. And that's why the, where the church creeds, I think, are helpful. I just got done teaching church history, so that's probably what I, why I thought of this. The Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and on the third day he rose again. Don't you see? It's this Jesus that we're talking about. Not any other. This particular Jesus who was born of a woman, born in this particular way. The scriptures and the creeds give us the exact language so that we can be sure we're talking about the real Jesus. And therefore, he goes on, verse 35, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. This real Jesus is holy. It relates to the question that Aaron so well um, asked last night, how can God forgive sinners? The only way that you and I can be right with God is by means of a perfect, holy sacrifice, a sinless redeemer who takes our place and dies for our sins so that we might have the righteousness of God. That great exchange is only possible if Jesus, the baby born, is perfectly holy and he is. Everyone, everyone else in history, the greatest men and women, have looked within and found that they do not live up to their own standards, let alone God's, except one person. And this is his birth that we celebrate. He never mourned over his own sin. Think about it. He asked others to repent, and he never repented once. Yes, in this Jesus, who is without blame and without sin, you would expect him to have a miraculous, unprecedented birth, and for sure he does. Well, have you responded to this Jesus? Have you responded? Let's look at how Mary responds. Verse 36, the angel assures Mary with the news of Elizabeth's birth. You see it there? It's meant to be a sign of God's power. 
barrenness is no obstacle for God. For nothing is impossible with God. For nothing, verse 37, will be impossible with God. God can, can, can overcome our limitations. He can do what is beyond a human possibility. Now, friend, if you're here and you uh, think you have intellectual issues with the virgin birth that we just mentioned or even the resurrection or other miracles in the Bible, I would contend your problem is not intellectual. Your problem is that you do not believe in the God of the impossible. You have a problem with this kind of God, a verse 27 kind of God. A God who can give Elizabeth and Mary a baby. My Christian brothers and sisters, consider Mary's question. How can this be? Nothing is impossible with God. How can I be more disciplined in my walk with the Lord? Nothing is impossible with God. How can I get through another day with toddlers running around? Nothing is impossible with God. How can I make it through another day with chronic pain? Nothing is impossible with God. How can I face another day with cancer? Nothing is impossible with God. How can I trust God in this current cultural moment? Nothing is impossible with God. How can I make it through depression? Nothing is impossible with God. After all we've heard this morning, look how Mary responds. Verse 38, and this is a sermon in and of itself. Verse 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here we have Mary's submissiveness to the word of God. Behold, I am your servant. Literally, I am a, your slave girl. ESV footnote says bond servant. Do what you want. It's your plan. I submit completely to you. You put yourself in Mary's shoes just for a minute. Think about the courage that it would take. Her life is about to be turned upside down. As a young woman, she is told that she's going to have a baby and it will ruin her reputation for sure. People will talk and it will follow her her whole life. A blight, a scandal that will follow her. And at this point, there are a ton of unknowns, not much that she has under control. How will her parents respond? How will Joseph respond? It's likely that her marriage is ruined. The wedding day that she has so looked forward to is off. Remember, before the angel appeared, Joseph was resolved to divorce her quietly. And it's incredible to consider then at this moment her response that even despite uncertainty and questions, all her fears, she says to God, God, I give you everything. I submit to you. It is your word and your will that I do. Let it be to me according to your word. What an amazing woman. 
someone that we should consider and emulate. I think sometimes we as Protestants just kind of ignore Mary in the story, just because there's plenty of bad theology uh, surrounding her. But we can do, we do ourselves a disservice here. Mary is a model saint in this passage, one who entrusts herself completely to her gracious God. How quick we are to distrust the Lord's plan for our lives. To distrust his will, what he's revealed to us, what circumstances we face, what things are out of our control. Would God grant us to be and to have more of Mary's heart in our lives? I also think there's this pattern that we see here, a pattern of sorts. Though the story is certainly unique, if you came to me and said an angel appeared to me, I would wonder if you're all right, you're all there. But the story is unique. Nothing like this is going to happen again. Um, but there is a pattern that we should consider. We encounter God in his word, right? We believe that God is active and that he speaks through his word. And so we spend daily time searching the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, looking for a word from God. And it's in this that then we hear a word from God. He speaks to us presently and personally in the scriptures. And what happens? Well, we begin to think like Mary. We consider, we ask questions. Lord, how can this be? And then we are driven to the point of saying with Mary, yes, yes, Lord, I submit to you. In suffering, let it be to me according to your word. In disease, let it be according to me. Let it be to me according to your word. In loneliness, let it be to me according to your word. In uncertainty, let it be according to me according to your word. It's a tongue twister. In times of worry, in the valley of the shadow of death, let it be to me according to your word. It's not always easy, certainly not clear. May we all come to the Bible, read it, and then say, let it be to me according to your word. So we've considered the birth announcement under three headings an unexpected meeting, an unending kingdom, and an unprecedented birth. We've said, behold your king, the God-man Jesus, the reason for Christmas. It's what Christmas is all about, the birth of Jesus, who will reign forever and ever, who is reigning forever ever and ever. And back to where we began this morning with a Charlie Brown Christmas, it shocked viewers and it still does to this day. When Linus steps up and says, lights please. And then he gives the tidings of great joy for all people. What moves viewers is the simple, unadorned presentation of the reason for Christmas. I've attempted this morning to go back to the original reason. To say, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. 
And as we go out from here, may we not forget this coming King Jesus, whose birth was unprecedented and, his, and whose kingdom will never end. Let's pray.